Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, though, we start with day two of the bus strike in Metro Vancouver. Buses, once again today, are parked. They are not rolling. The C bus is shut down. The SkyTrain is operating, but the union involved here, yeah, they're trying to shut down SkyTrain, too. Now, i got Lindsay Meredith standing by to discuss this here now. What should be done here? Should the government step in? Let's have a listen to the two sides here, first of all. Let's listen first to the union spokesperson here. This is Liam O'Neill. Okay, he's with QP 4500, talking about the wage increase that they're looking for. He says, hey, they can afford it. Have a listen. In order to fix that wage discrepancy... It would cost them annually less than an additional 0.05% of their annual budget for salary, benefits, and wages. Okay, well, that's what he says. Now, he represents the transit supervisors there, and they want parity with SkyTrain supervisors who make more money demanding, looking for a 25% raise, according to management here, which would boost the salary after three years on the job here for a transit supervisor to $115,000 a year. Here's the other side. TransLink CEO Kevin Quinn. He says this is unaffordable. Have a listen. We estimate that the ripple effect of the union's demands on other future contracts to be in the order of $250 million. That is $250 million on top of a $4.6 billion deficit over 10 years. Okay, talk's at a standstill here. The buses are at a standstill as well. Let's discuss it with my guest now, Lindsay Meredith, Professor Emeritus in Marketing, BD School of Business at SFU. Lindsay, thank you for coming on today. Hey, pleasure, Mike. Okay, this looks like a real standoff here. No talk scheduled here right now. Two sides seem far apart and dug in. Who's got the upper hand here in this thing, do you think? Well, it's a bit of a PR battle, that's that's for sure. Um, the union basically didn't pull out their, their biggest shot, which is to go right after SkyTrain immediately. And they were trying mm. to look like the, the good guy, trying to reason it out. We got a 48-hour quasi-stand down while we look for the solution. Um, they... TransLink people, on the other hand, are having to say, look, uh, if this keeps on going, these kinds of wage hikes, uh, this will spread back to other unions in our system. And then, of course, that's the multiplier effect I think he was talking about. So um, this is very much about what are the public going to think about both sides in this story? And nobody wants to be seen as the bad guy, especially because watch out, step the wrong way, either way on on this one. And you just might wind up being declared an essential service, and that would really put the cat among the pigeons. Yeah, for sure. And I, I like what you were saying there about how it's also it's not only a battle between these two sides in this dispute. It's also a fight for the hearts and minds of, of the public and the tra- especially the traveling public who are inconvenienced by this. Now, what do you think of this? I just wonder if there's much sympathy out there, for, especially for people who are stranded, can't get to work or school on the bus here for two days. And they're taking a look at this situation here. You've got, what, like 180 supervisors. This is what we're talking about here. This is, a, this is not like a huge bargaining unit of this union. We're talking 180 yeah. people here 
who have now stranded more than 300,000 people and they can't get to work on the bus. So I'm just wondering what, how much sympathy will there be out there? Go ahead. I think you nailed it. I think you're yeah. really on the money here. Um, look, when you're declaring a, uh, a shutdown of a major, major connection in, in the economic fabric, um, this can really is how you fundamentally bring an economy to its knees, you knock out its transportation system. So yeah. are these guys in the union making a lot of pals doing this? I suspect your answer is down the money. Um, not a lot of friends at the moment. Um, now, if they're going to escalate it and go for a shutdown of SkyTrain, boy, are they really begging uh, to get government intervention here. It's a tough one for the NDP, by the way, Mike. And, uh, you know, people have hit this one. Look, it's essentially a Labour, quote, supporting party. Um, sure. The last thing these guys want to be seen doing is slapping essential service designations onto individual unions. <laughs> this is not, not how you support the old party line, so to speak. So uh, will the NDP move? It's a rock and hard spot. But if this goes on, I'm putting my money on the NDP coming out with uh, threats of essential service. Well, yeah, especially if it escalates. And let's have another listen to the union leader here. This is Liam O'Neill, QP4500, representing these striking transit supervisors. And you'll hear him make the case here that, by the way, this is not over. It could escalate. It could expand. Let's listen, then I'll get your thoughts. Clearly, we don't have a deal now, so we'll have to plan our next escalation. Obviously, it's going to be uh, an escalation, which means more than the current one. Yeah, obviously, obviously it's going to escalate here, he says, if they don't get a deal. And I heard the union at one point say they want a deal tomorrow or else it's going to escalate. Lindsay, your thoughts on that? Like if this thing spreads to SkyTrain, I don't know. Do you think that do you think, first of all, this union has any rational argument to be able to say, hey, we want to pick at SkyTrain and shut that down, too? They don't work for SkyTrain. No, under under labor law, uh, basically the way it works in the ministry um, and in a lot of governments, actually, is uh, it's considered to be an ally service. So, in other words, they interact with each other. The buses go right to the SkyTrain uh, designation drops and they do pickups there, deliveries there. Um, and so they're arguing that that makes basically makes TransLink an ally, therefore strikeable, um, picketable. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I suspect... I hope the union are going to get some good advice on this one because I think they're if they do this, they are getting very close to stepping on a major landmine here. This could really go up in their face, and um, the result might not be too pretty. Speaking of Lindsay Meredith, Beattie School of Business at SFU, what do you think about the calls for government intervention here, Lindsay? Let me play the a clip here. This is the opposition leader, Kevin Falcon, leader of BC United, of course, formerly the BC Liberal Party here. Here he is calling for essential service designation for the bus system, which would limit the strike action. Let's listen. What they need to do is establish minimal levels of service because it is an essential service. And that way, while there's an ongoing dispute taking place, the public is still being served. In the absence of that, government will be forced to use the heavy hammer of legislation. Certainly that's the last tool you want to use. Okay, so he says that the bus service is an essential service there. Do you agree with him? Well, that's where it's going to be a real tough one. Um, what would a good lawyer, labor lawyer do on this one? He would drag out stuff like, just a second, you've knocked out access to hospitals. Employees can't get there. Patients can't get there. Access to doctors, access to medical testing. Um, does that sound like essential service? Yeah, you bet your boots it does. Um, yeah. So in cases like that, you can see where 
this is clearly something, and governments rightly don't want to step into this stuff, Mike, because again, it becomes a PR issue too. If you start messing around and throwing that word essential service high west and crooked, you're going to wind up making probably more uh, enemies than friends in the long run. The whole idea is these guys are supposed to bargain this out and get to a conclusion on their own. Uh, however, when it, as I say, it's such a crucial connection in our economic uh, fabric here, uh, you know what? You probably can't afford to let these guys uh, stall the whole thing and have it crash and burn. You're going to yeah. back to the you raised. You're going to get way too many people way too upset and enraged about this thing. And then the government will be forced to act. Yeah, I think the government knows darn well that, that the situation they're in here. Let's have a listen to the labor minister. And as you mentioned here, as an NDP government, so this is a union friendly government and they do not want to intervene in a strike. That is always their fallback position. Let's listen to the Labour Minister, Harry Baines. He's a former union leader himself before he got into politics here. Now, here he is. He's asked, should the government intervene here? Let's listen. That option is available now under the code. Parties can reach out to the Labour Board and they put their cases together and, uh, uh, and uh, declare certain areas of this uh, service as essential service. It has happened. It happens all the time. Yeah, basically, he's saying it's not up to the government to declare the system as an essential service. It's up to the it's up to the parties to go to the labor board and start making arguments there about whether this is an essential service and try and hammer hammer out a deal. I mean, you know, why hasn't TransLink done that? Like, why hasn't TransLink gone to the labor board and say, hey, this is an essential service here? Yeah, I mean, uh, fundamentally, both sides should have been looking at this as their fallback position and basically have this as a very strong plan B. And you're right, that should have been operationalized before it became this 48-hour game of high-stakes poker. And yeah. the bottom line is, um, if they're not going to either independently, both, both sides go forward and get this thing going for a essential services ruling and a settlement on it, then, yeah, watch out. Um the government will be forced to step in, and then they will make the declaration. And guess what? You may not like the outcome after that. Yeah. Hey, Lindsay, last question for you. What do you think about Uber tripling their prices here? I mean, talk about taking advantage yeah. of people. Yeah, well, Uber and Lyft, those guys, look, they've, they've gone into fallback position already. They're, quote, kind of cap, trying to cap them the prices on high demand periods. Um, you know what? They're still collecting some very serious coin on this thing. And you're very right. It's called demand-oriented pricing, Mike. And what it means is you sit back as a marketer and you watch and you see who's really desperate. And then you find out how desperate they are by jacking the price through the roof and letting them pay for it. So yeah. who suffered geographically, South Surrey especially, that whole Langley Aldergrove quarter? Why? There's no SkyTrain available there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Who else suffers if you're in the service industry? And regrettably, we're back to the people who aren't getting paid a lot much. That's hotel workers, the people working in the bars. That's the people cleaning office towers. Those people all need transit. And yep. no, they can afford Uber, trust me. Lindsay, thank you for coming on today. Always a pleasure, Mike. Take care. Let's talk a little bit about one of my favorite places to visit, Mexico, especially at this time of year when the weather is cold and rainy. Man, there's nothing better than a get getaway uh, to somewhere warm and sunny. My family and I, we've done some vacations at 
Uh, Puerto Vallarta is one of our favorite places to visit. A lot of people love Cancun. A lot of people love Cabo as well. And we've talked a lot on the show about the people who have packed up and decided to move to Mexico. You may have heard my conversation recently with Christine Whiteley. Christine moved her family from from British Columbia to Mexico, uh, basically for the cost of living. I got Sean Gillespie standing by to discuss. He's based in Playa del Carmen. Uh, have a listen to Christina here on a recent show. I asked her, why did she decide to pack up, leave British Columbia, move to Mexico? She said, look, mainly because of the cost of living. Have a listen. Our cost of our phones, our electricity, our internet, our television, you know, all those things are less down here. So we don't have these piling costs that come up. Yeah. So she said that she saves a lot of money. Now, interestingly, the value of the peso has been going up. The economy in Mexico is showing some uh, strength here. So that erodes your spending power of your Canadian dollar when you go down there. But still, a lot of people say they find the cost of living down there is a lot easier to manage. All right. Let's discuss with my guest now, Sean Gillespie. Sean is a successful entrepreneur in the health and wellness industry. And about a year ago, he moved to Mexico. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show Hey, Sean, thanks a lot for coming on today. Well, thank you for having me, Mike. This is uh, actually my very first radio in, in, uh, interview, so I'm pretty excited. Um, okay, so that's I'm cool. Glad to share anything, share anything I, I, I know, so go ahead and ask away. Thank you, Sean. I uh, I found Sean on social media. He does a really good job on Instagram and elsewhere about his experience of living and working in Mexico. So let's talk about your move down there, Sean. So you moved down there about a year ago. What made you What made you make the move? You know, I was uh, going through a divorce and I was at a point in my life where I could live anywhere in the world that I wanted to. And uh, the only place I'd ever been able to really relax was uh, on the beach uh, down near, you know, Playa del Carmen. So I decided to just live here full time. And it was a really good decision. Okay, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, what's, what the, what's the cost of living like down there? What, let's start with housing. How much does it cost to live down there to sort of rent a place or buy a place? You know, it, it's there, there's so much variance in that number. Um you know, it, 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 you know, for instance, like I pay around 4,000 a month for rent, but I live literally like on the beach. Um, but you can rent, I know people that are renting for 250 to $500 a month and they're just wanting like a small one bedroom unit and they're, you know, four or five blocks away from the ocean. Um, so you can get, you know, it, it really depends on what you want. You can go, you know, very inexpensive to, you know, a lot more expensive. So it's a pretty wide gamut here. 4000 a month, man, you must have a mansion down there. That would get you a lot in Mexico, wouldn't it? You know, it, 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 I'm in Playa del Carmen, so it's, it's a little bit more expensive probably than, um, you know, some of the more remote areas of Mexico or some of the other areas of Mexico. Um, but I would say, like, the place I'm living in now, I don't know, if, you, if it was to sell, say, in Miami, it would probably be like a $20 million condo. Whoa. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how that sounds pretty nice, Sean. Okay, let's yeah. talk a little bit about the the cost of living down there for things like groceries or necessities. Let me play another uh clip here for you from Christina Whiteley on an earlier show and it was interesting, Sean, because she said that a lot of people who are visiting Mexico now, either from Canada or the United States, 
they're noticing that the strength of the Mexican currency, the peso, is doing pretty well, and that cuts into your buying power a little bit. Here's what she had to say to me, and I'll get your thoughts. The Christina Whiteley here. It has for many Canadians, and a lot of the time they come down and they're like, wow, it's really expensive because... Um, you know, whether you look at it as the pace, the value of the pesos come up or the Canadian dollar has fallen, the exchange yeah. rate is, isn't that great. Okay, so the exchange rate, what are you finding in terms of the strength of the peso and how has that affected your budgeting there? You know, the peso is just slaughtering the dollar. So when I moved down here about a year ago, you could get 20 pesos to the, or, you know, $1 would buy you about 20 pesos. Now you're lucky if you can get 16 pesos for that same dollar. So um, it's been a huge decline in the in the amount of money you can buy. So that's like a 20% decrease in what you can buy. Um, so she's absolutely right. And, and I don't know how, I, I imagine the Canadian dollar is probably similarly, you know, um, valued to, to the, you know, the, the number is a little different, but it's probably moving in the same direction the yes. US dollar is. Yeah, yeah. No, it has. Like The purchasing power of the U.S. and Canadian dollar appears to have gone down a little bit down there, but it's still a good deal, right? Like you're still able to live cheaper there than you would back in the in the States or Canada, correct? Yeah, it's still a good deal. Like I you know, tell people all the time, if you wanted to live in like a gated community in one of the nicest homes that was made out of concrete, not not timber, you know, because the houses here are made to withstand hurricanes. I mean, you're looking at about Four to five hundred thousand dollars. You can get a really nice, probably two hundred meter, uh, two hundred square meter home here in a very nice gated community. Um, and you know, it's not necessarily cheap, but we're talking. This would be equivalent to a brand new house made anywhere in the United States or Canada with you know all the high end fixtures. You know, the difference is it's made out of concrete instead of uh, wood, but it's going to last probably forever as well. So um, I think you can still get a lot of value. I don't know many places in the U.S. where you can buy a house for $400,000. It's that size and that nice. Yeah. Speaking to Sean Gillespie, Sean's an entrepreneur who moved to Mexico about a year ago. He lives in Playa del Carmen, talking about the cost of living there. Would you say that it sounds like the Mexican economy is doing pretty well? What are your thoughts on it? Well, yeah, the Mexican economy is on fire, and I don't know that the world has really recognized it yet, but um, I didn't realize until I moved down here and I started doing a lot of more, more research, but Mexico moved from number 14 to number 12 in terms of overall GDP, and their GDP uh, that's, that's um, posted is about $1.8 trillion. so it's just behind Canada. I think, can or it's just a, I think Canada's like coming in at number 10. And uh, then Russia and then Mexico's right there. But there's probably another easily trillion dollars that's in the Mexican economy that's not reported in that GDT number. So our GDP number. So everybody knows about the cartels and everybody knows about the tourist banging cash. So none of those numbers are hitting the, the GDP here. And I would say Mexican economy is probably already probably in the top six or seven economies in the world. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned the cartels, because I want to ask you about crime. And, of course, Mexico has got the reputation for the drug wars that have been going going on down there. And we, I talked to Christina Whiteley about that on an earlier show. She moved her family to Cabo from British Columbia. I asked her about crime and safety in Mexico. Here's what she had to say to me, Sean, then I'll get your thoughts. You just have to be smart about what you're doing and where you're going. And if you're not, you know, you're not getting inv involved in bad things. If you're not getting involved in drugs and you're not getting involved in, you know, partying until wee hours of the morning and walking home by yourself or doing things that are silly that you wouldn't do any other place, yeah. then you're not going to get into trouble down here. Sean, would you agree with her? Yeah, I would echo that completely. I know, like, I just was just looking at some statistics recently, and I think they have Cancun 
listed as one of the top 10 most dangerous places in Mexico. And, you know, I go to Cancun at least once a week. I just went there with a group of people. We went grocery shopping at Costco. Um, I mean, supposedly there's some neighborhoods in Cancun they say you don't want to venture into. Um, but I've driven all over Cancun. Um, and Cancun is like, it's an interesting place. It's like three cities in one. Uh, if anybody's ever been to Las Vegas, there's a very new part that looks a lot like Las Vegas. And then there's a new part, another new part that looks like uh, Miami. And then you have the hotel zone. But I've never felt unsafe at all anywhere in Cancun. And I've driven through there at all hours of the morning. Um, and it, it, and she's right. Yeah. You know, I'm not doing drugs. I'm not buying prostitutes. So as long as you stay out of that kind of stuff, you're going to be in pretty good shape. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the same uh, in lots of places in the world, isn't it? I mean, there are dangerous places in Vancouver, too. Just people have to be sensible about where you go and, and what you do. Uh, speaking of driving, like driving in Mexico, that's something I've never done. What's it like to drive there? You know, it takes a little bit of getting used to. The rules are, I would say, um, simplified a little bit. Um, you know, it's it's so like, you know, here when you have a green light, if you have a four way intersection, you have a green light, only one lane goes at a time. So you have one lane moving, three lanes stop. But when you move, you can go left, right, um, straight. And sometimes you'll have cars in the middle lane that, you know, you're going straight from the left lane instead of turning and they're going left and they're turning in front of you. So you have you have to be careful. Um, but in general, I find it, it's easier to drive in Mexico. I think the drivers are a lot more aggressive, but at the end of the day, they're also polite. So, you know, in the United States, I've run into like lane is going from two lanes to one lane and you're trying to speed up to get in front of them. And they're speeding up right there with you to see you crash into the, you know, concrete pillars that they're just going to not let you in. Where in Mexico, they, they let you in. You just have to be a little yeah. aggressive. Okay, Sean, let me ask you the question. I, I hear this a lot from our listeners when we discuss this topic, and it's health care. So for people who, you know, a lot of listeners may have vacationed in Mexico, but they start wondering, well, I don't know about living there, though. What if you go down there and you get sick or something happens, you get an accident? What is the health care like down there? Do you, do you have, like, private health care insurance down there? Yes, you have private health care insurance if you live here. It costs about $200 a month, um, and I don't think they put an age on that. So, like, you know, you're not getting penalized if you're old like me getting health insurance. You just pay a, a set rate. Um, being a resident of, of the country, which I am a legal resident, you also get health care for free provided. So they have, like, a tiered health care system. They have a lower tier which is free to everyone. And then they have an, uh, a higher tier, which you pay about $200 a month for. And in general, I would say that higher tier would be better than healthcare in the United States. Um, that lower tier is probably like going, I don't know if you're familiar with like a county hospital in the United States, but it'd be like going to a county hospital in the United States. We're gonna have to wait a lot longer for, for services and that kind of stuff, but you can still get treated for you know no money. Okay, so you're not worried, you're not worried about the healthcare system down there. You're satisfied with it. Yeah, I in many ways, like the dentists here, I believe, are better than the ones in the United States by a long shot. Hmm. Uh, being old, you know, you can do aesthetic medicine here with, you know, and, and, you know, biohacking type stuff with stem cells and all of that. And you can get, you know, better prices on that with a lot higher quality. Um, I know from a veterinary standpoint, I've got a big German shepherd. Uh, the veterinary care is much better here. Um, I haven't ventured out into the hospitals too much. I gave blood once, um, but you know, from what I've seen, the hospitals look very nice and would be very comfortable with what's in the U.S. 
Okay, we continue my conversation with Sean Gillespie. Sean is an entrepreneur who decided to move to Mexico a year ago. He's been living there about a year in Playa del Carmen. Got lots of calls for him here. Taylor calling from Ladner. Hi, Taylor. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. Um, yeah, just uh, two years ago, rented a car in Cancun and drove to one most beautiful place I've been, Bacalar. Um, and then from there, drove all the way into Belize and throughout Belize and all the way back. And honestly, it's quite safe and you just got to be smart. Yeah, interesting. So you never had, okay, that's an interesting adventure you went on there. What was the traffic like when you're driving? Do people drive crazy down there or what? No, uh, it's the coolest thing. So uh, through Cancun, it's just like being in the city here. Yeah, it's busy. Once you get onto the main roads, you know, people pass each other quite courteously. Mm. In Belize, there's actually no speed limit at all. You can do 100 miles per hour if you want. It's it's honestly some of the best driving I've ever done in the world. Okay, interesting. Sean, would you agree with that? Like, are the drivers courteous? Yeah, um, yes and no. I mean, for the most part, <laughs> um, they're very courteous. You get a lot of tourists here that are not so courteous. I actually did a video on that. Um, I don't know. For some reason, people from the United States think that left lane is theirs and they get into it going 50 miles an hour and think that's where they can camp out. Um, but, you know, you can typically the locals will will get over for you. And, and your caller is absolutely right. And for those of your listeners that have never heard of Bacalar, Bacalar is regarded as the Maldives of the West. And it is a phenomenal, phenomenal, beautiful. I mean, it's just gorgeous. So I would recommend anybody go there. Um, it is it is amazing. The new train that they're putting in will stop right there as well. Interesting. Daryl and Coquitlam. Hi, Daryl. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. I just have a couple of quick uh, questions for your guest. One, I would, and I realize how cheap it is to live in Mexico, but perhaps he can lighten us and let us know, either in Canadian or U.S. dollars, what is the average income of a Mexican working in Mexico? never talk about that. Secondly, a number of entrepreneurs, either from Canada, United States, who moved to Mexico have actually made their wealth in Canada or the United States, not in Mexico. And third, today the Canadian press is reporting over 17,000 Mexicans are seeking asylum in Canada. I don't Mm. know how many Canadians seek asylum in Mexico. Okay, Daryl, thank you for that. It's an interesting point. So let me ask you about the standard of living for the Mexican people there, Sean. I think it's a good point. Now, we're talking about what's it like as an American or Canadian to move down there and live cheap. But how are, how is, you know, you were mentioning earlier the, the, the economy is doing well. Is the standard of living going up for Mexican people? Got a minute left here. Yeah, it's a lot, a lot of fact in that. Um, you know, the minimum wage for uh, Mexican is basically, it's about $16 a day around $80 wow. for, and they work six days a week. That's, that's the minimum wage. Um, you know, a medical doctor here would make probably 5,000 a month or $60,000 a year. Um, and so you've got a range of labor between that. Entrepreneurs are gonna be the wealthiest here. Um, I think you have more millionaires per capita here in Mexico from what I can tell than any country I've ever seen, including Canada and the United States. Okay, it's very interesting to speak to you. Sean, we got more calls coming in, but we'll just have to have you back. Thanks for coming on today. All right, thanks, Mike. This year's immigration levels plan will help address some of these challenges that I've outlined by setting a new target from 431,000 this year to 465,000 next year, 485,000 in 2024, and 500,000 in the year 2025. 
Okay, talking about record high immigration to Canada, you heard Sean Fraser there back when he was the immigration minister announcing that record high ramp up of immigration target numbers for Canada up to 500,000 per year by next year. So this is going to be a big political issue here going forward here. Can we sustain this number of new Canadians coming to Canada, putting pressure on housing, health care? Are we bringing in too many new Canadians into the country? And then you've got the international students issue, which we've been telling you about on the show. Now, this is a program that had been unrestricted, unlimited, and you just had massive numbers of international students streaming into Canada and we'll talk about that. I got Tony Keller standing by to discuss. Let's have a listen to the new immigration minister here, Mark Miller, announcing the caps now, long awaited limits on the number of international students coming to Canada. Let's listen. Today, I am announcing a temporary two year cap on new international student permits. For 2024, the cap is expected to result in approximately 364,000 approved study permits a decrease of 35% from 2023. Okay, 35% reduction in the number of student visas there. Let's discuss with my guest now, Tony Keller, the award-winning columnist at the Globe and Mail, and he's been doing a great job on this story, in my opinion. Hi, Tony, thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. I appreciate it a lot, and I'm, I'm really uh, enjoying your work on, on the immigration file here. Let's start first, Tony, with the new CAPS on the number of international students coming to Canada. I guess this is something that had been signaled or telegraphed a little while ago from the government, so not a surprise. What do you think about this? So I think it's a good start. Uh, I think it's a good beginning. I mean, basically, we have uh, an immigration system right now where, as you said, the, the number of um, student visas that are available is unlimited. Yeah. And also pretty much unlimited uh, is the number of temporary foreign worker visas. And you put those two together, and they're actually dwarfing the official regular immigration channel. So right off the top of the show there, you played uh, the previous immigration minister talking about raising immigration levels to 460 and 480 and then 500,000 a year by next year. Uh, the temporary, the two temporary streams, the temporary foreign workers and visa students are absolutely dwarfing that. Um, as of last fall, we had 2.5 million temporary residents in Canada, uh, officially. Um, by the end of the year, I would expect the number, the end of last year, so we don't have the figures yet, I would expect the number would be 3 million or maybe north of 3 million. And by the first quarter of this year, I think it'll be well over 3 million, uh, given the flows that have been coming in. So um, we talk a lot about the regular official immigration stream and the government talks a lot about the regular official immigration stream, but there's this whole other thing that's been happening mostly unnoticed. And the government is sort of finally taking a very first step uh, to get a bit of a, a handle on this. Yeah, boy, there's some great context there. And I think you're right that I think a lot of people didn't realize the scale of temporary foreign workers and certainly for international students. I think when people found out how many international students are coming to Canada, we're like, wow. And the fact that it's unlimited is quite extraordinary. Then you've got, and you've written about this in the Globe and Mail, and I encourage the listeners to check out your work on this, the number of international students who come to Canada 
and go to these these fake schools like they're you know the minister has called them puppy mills they're diploma mills they're not let's be honest they're not real schools it sounds like there's a bit of a scam element to this let me play a clip here for you tony for your thoughts immigration consultant earl blaney on the show last week about the number of international students who go to these no no show schools let's listen there are some people in this industry that have gone as far as to call this human trafficking huge volumes of international students that are assigned to a particular college through the visa process never show up there are some schools that zero of the students who gained access to canada to enter canada to be a student at that school have never shown up at that school zero zero we got some these are no show schools tony what's going on with this because you've done a great job writing about this in the globe and mail tell me about these these fake schools yeah so when people think about visa students they generally have a really positive idea they say oh wow highly educated people from around the world are coming to canada to get even more education uh, some of them are going to bring that education back to their home country. Some of them are going to remain in Canada. They're going to be whatever, doctors, nuclear physicists, uh, computer scientists. And so a part of our education stream is that. But a large part of the immigration stream through education right now is clearly people who are just coming to Canada so that they can they can work at Tim Hortons. Um, and, and a way in is to enroll at... Uh, a college, whether a private college or a public college, that gives you that gives you the right to work. That gives you the right to work on limited hours. Uh, it may get you into the immigration stream, or at least a shot at trying to immigrate permanently to Canada. It will get you a visa to continue to work after you graduate. So, in effect, in exchange for a small amount of tuition, and we're often talking about ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars you've got yourself the right to work in Canada for many years and possibly even um, get into the permanent immigration stream in Canada. So that's kind of what the trade is between schools and students. And it's not illegal. And and everyone kind of understands what's going on, I think, except uh, the government of Canada wasn't quite aware what was going on, didn't seem to be sort of blind to it. And most people didn't understand, most Canadians didn't understand what was going on. So we kind of want to get a handle on this to say, Look, what, what are we trying to do here? Like, what are the benefits to Canada? What are the costs? What are the trade-offs? Let's try to have a coherent policy that is beneficial to Canada and, and Canadians. And I, I don't think that's exactly what's been happening for the last few years. Yeah, no, I think quite clearly. And I wonder if there was some willful blindness going on by government if they, like I've heard the previous minister, Sean Fraser, talk about the, the economic impact or the economic benefit of international students being allowed to work while they're here and we also know that a lot of our colleges and universities profit greatly from international students because they charge extra high tuition fees at those those schools so i wonder if they realize this was going on but there's a lot of money on the line here and there's a lot of people working everybody realized it was going on so you've got the business lobby saying hey let's let the maximum number of low-skilled workers come into the country because that will keep wages down at the bottom end. That means, you know, if you run a fast food restaurant, you can hire people for $14 or $15 an hour. Um, but the various provincial governments led by Ontario, also the government of British Columbia, were sort of saying, listen, this is an opportunity for us to uh, devote fewer taxpayer dollars to higher education. That put colleges and universities under pressure to find new sources of revenue. So, so everyone sort of has their interests. Um, it's just that I don't think on the whole what has resulted has been beneficial for the national 
interest. And I think yeah. that is what sort of voters and some governments are starting to realize. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of Tony Keller, columnist at the Globe and Mail, talking about Canada's immigration system, international students, temporary foreign workers. Canada needs immigrants, right? Like the country was built on immigration. My parents are immigrants to Canada. And let me play another clip here for you, Tony, for your thoughts. So this is Sean Fraser. Again, these, the, the recent, or recently replaced immigration minister. This is back when he was the minister talking about the skilled trades that we need to bring into Canada. And then I'll get your thoughts. So here's Sean Fraser. It's hard to find workers. Uh, the reality is you don't need to uh, dig into the stats to understand that there was a, a million jobs available in the Canadian economy. You need to walk down Main Street of any community in Canada. You're going to see help wanted signs in the window. We need more workers in every sector, in every region of the country, regardless of whether it's frontline healthcare workers, truck drivers, home builders, or software engineers. Okay, do you think he's got a point there? We, obviously, we do have a skill shortage here, right? We need workers. Right. So what he's saying is is partly true and partly nonsense, and you have to kind of separate it out. So, so there are a couple of things that are true or were true. First of all, as we came out of the pandemic, there were a lot of businesses scrambling to try to get back workers. There was this crazy mismatch that was going on. Second of all, for sure, Canada has shortages in lots of important areas. Have you tried to get a, a family doctor recently? Have you tried to have yeah. surgery? Like we have a pretty big shortage of doctors. We clearly have a shortage of nurses. What we don't really have a shortage of, clearly don't have a shortage of, is uh, a shortage of, of people to work at fast food restaurants or stock shelves in stores or work in warehouses. We don't have a shortage of that at all. Um, in fact, we've got unemployment in Canada is actually going up and has been for the last year. There is no shortage of that. Now, on the other hand, if you say what we really need is a lot of low wage labor and, and no one should, you know, businesses that pay minimum wage should not be under any pressure to pay more than minimum wage. Yes, then you want uh, a constant inflow of people to work those kinds of jobs. But, you know, I, I really feel that if we somewhat limited the temporary foreign worker program and the student visa program, uh, sort of limited somewhat the, the number of very low wage people coming in, but didn't limit the number of high wage, high skill people coming in, we'd actually have some good things happening at the bottom of the labor market. The person working at Tim Hortons might be able to say, listen, I won't do this job unless you pay $17 or $18 an hour or $19 an hour. Um, so there'd be there'd be good things for inequality. There'd be good things at the bottom of the labor market. I think there would be some positives to having some breaks on all of this. And again, I, I think the government is sort of starting to wake up to that. Hey, Tony, last question for you. Here's another one up for your thoughts. What about the demographic trends that we see in our population? We've got an older population. We've got baby boomers who are retiring, getting sick and ending up in hospital. We need more workers working and paying taxes to support all the entitlement programs that we have in the country, the social safety net. This is an argument I've heard frequently from the federal government as well. So we need to ramp up immigration because there used to be seven people working for every retired person. Now it's three to one. And it could go down to two to one. Like we need more people working and paying taxes to pay for all our programs. Is that is that a legit argument? 
So that's again, that is partly true, but you got to sort of be careful and get into the weeds. So it is true that that Canada's population, if we had zero immigration, Canada's population would be gradually aging and the number of people working compared to the number of people retired, you know, the number of people working would keep relatively declining, the number of people retired would keep relatively growing. So yeah, we, we need immigration. Um, and particularly if immigrants are young, highly skilled and highly educated, hey, there are some really great benefits to that. That said, Canada has had in recent years a much higher immigration rate than any other developed country, all of which are aging. Most developed countries in Europe and the United States are both aging a little bit faster than Canada. And they've actually had better economic performance. So it's sort of a complicated story. And yes, we want immigration. Like I'm not here to say Canada shouldn't have immigration. Um, I think we just need to be very thoughtful about how many, what speed, and of of what sort of educational and skills quality let's be smart about this let's recruit the best and the brightest and make canada wealthier more developed more successful like i said no one would complain if we had suddenly recruited ten thousand doctors last year i just don't really see the logic of recruiting hundreds of thousands of people to work low-end jobs i don't really see what the benefit to canada and canadians is of that tony thank you for your thoughts and analysis on this today i appreciate it a lot Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.